Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, August the 7th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Money and political power are inextricably bound together. Political success is easily more achieved with financial backing than without, and the history of politics is littered with examples of venality, cronyism, influence peddling and corruption. The last five years have shown that British politics is particularly vulnerable to manipulation by vested interests and well-financed fringe groups. So says Peter Gagan, the UK-based Irish journalist who leads the investigations unit at the Open Democracy News website. Gagan's new book, Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, looks at covert financing and shady dealings during the Brexit referendum and in the general elections of 2017 and 2019, drawing some worrying conclusions. We talked earlier. Peter, you're very welcome back to the podcast. We've had you on before, of course. For the benefit of our readers, can you tell us how you came to be an expert on all these activities? Well, Hugh, thanks for uh, for having me back on. And actually, I think it's it's it feels quite apt to be talking to the Irish Times about this because actually it was while working for your August uh, institution that I really stumbled across this story or these stories that started me on this journey basically four years ago. Um, I was I've often freelanced for uh, for the Irish Times, and I was doing some work up in the northeast of England ahead of the Brexit referendum, as people remember, like almost four years ago exactly. You know, this was the big issue was will Britain leave the European Union? And I was up in Sunderland, which kind of became a bit of a poster child for the vote to leave the European Union. And I was writing uh, a feature for the paper about two or three days before the, the vote itself. And while I was there, I noticed something quite curious. I was getting the train back from Sunderland into Newcastle. And on the local train, I kind of picked up the Metro, which is the free sheet newspaper that you know, kind of circulates across Britain. And there was a big advert on the front of the Metro. It said, vote, leave, take back control. And that was like the big slogan of the, the Brexit campaign. But I turned it over and I noticed on the back there was the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party's logo, and a kind of little imprint that said paid for by the DUP. I said, that's very curious. Why is the DUP kind of advertising in Sunderland? I'm like, what a, quite an expensive looking piece of, um, piece of advertisement too. And I kind of didn't think that much about it. And I folded the, the newspaper away and I kind of got on with my, kind of writing my copy actually for the next day's paper. And I kind of filed it to the back of my mind, but I kind of kept a bit of an interest on it because... I used to work in Belfast and I knew that political donations in Northern Ireland were kept secret. You didn't have to disclose who made the donations under the kind of loophole from the Troubles. And it never really mattered before because there was never, you know, people weren't that interested in pumping money into Northern Irish seats because there wasn't that many of them. So as time went on, I started doing a bit more research into this and I ended up getting in touch with a, a journalist of Open Democracy called Adam Ramsey and he'd been in Edinburgh just before the referendum and he'd noticed lots of vote leave placards which had the same imprint, paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party. And we were, he was very puzzled by this too. Why is the DUP funding, leaf, uh, funding placards in Edinburgh? So we started, we got together and we ended up kind of doing a lot of digging into this, trying to find out what was happening. And around February of 2017, we published a long story that was able to say that the DUP had spent at least a quarter million pounds on their Brexit campaign. 
And to put that in context, that's five times as much as the DUP had spent on the previous Stormont election. You know, this was a huge sum of money uh, for Northern Irish politics, never really been seen before. And it caused a bit of a stir. At the time, the Stormont had just collapsed. The RHI inquiry was starting into the renewable heating incentive. And there's a lot of questions about, you know, money in Northern Irish politics. And as we went on, we started like kind of find, trying to dig around this a bit more. And eventually it came out that almost um, the DUP had received a donation of £435,000 for its Brexit campaign, um, just in the run-up to the referendum. And more than that, it also emerged that this money had come through a thing called the Constitutional Research Council, which sounds quite grand, but actually turns out really just to have been one man called Richard Cook, who lives in a pebble-dash house, in a pebble-dash semi-detached house, on the outskirts of Glasgow. And Mr. Cook had a very colourful business past, had actually been in business with the head of Saudi secret intelligence and all sorts of other kind of things leading on from it. And that really was the thing that started me going, well, how does money work in British politics? Is it possible to spend like half a million pounds and nobody knows where it comes from? Um, and it turns out it is actually, I've written an entire book and I still don't know where the Democratic Unionist Party's money has come from, but I hope I found some other interesting things out. Do you have any suspicions as to where it came from? Well, it's really difficult to um, to kind of put a handle on it because the Democratic Unionist Party has never really raised any money uh, from private donations in the past. So what's happened is subsequently to um, to my work and my work with my colleagues, they have changed the legislation in Northern Ireland. So now uh, donations are made public, which sounds great. But actually, because the donation threshold is quite high, there's been almost no donations ever declared in Northern Ireland. There's been a couple to, to Ian Paisley Jr., who might be familiar to some of our listeners uh, in North Antrim, and that's really about it. So the Democratic Unionist Party doesn't really fundraise in any sizable way from uh, donors, which makes it really difficult to figure out where it could have come from. Uh, Richard Cook, as well as having um, kind of various business interests around the world, uh, was quite a prominent Scottish Conservative. He'd been the vice chairman of the Scottish Conservative Party and will be well known in unionist circles. So the is possibly it could have been a, another a unionist donor or somebody else who was looking to try and kind of avoid transparency by uh, by funneling the money this way. But we don't know actually. In my book, I have one new kind of little little snippet about this story which hasn't been released before, which is that um, Matthew Elliott, who is the head of the Leave campaign, he used to very very close to, to Michael Gove and others in British politics. About uh, two months before the referendum, he did write an email saying, "Don't forget the Democratic Unionist Party can spend up to seven hundred thousand pounds!" Exclamation mark. So really, it could have come from any of the the kind of the world of money that has fluctuated around the Brexit referendum campaign. Now, obviously, that's a very serious issue. But part of me, part of me looking at, at that story says, well, somebody was kind of cute. They looked at the rules. They figured out how the rules worked and they made those rules work to their advantage. And I'm not saying that's good, but it's certainly not illegal. And particularly in relation to the the Brexit campaign, it is quite true that it's not as if the odds were entirely stacked in favour of leave. In fact, the great majority of the British establishment, including the then government and most of the city and most of industry, uh, uh, were on the other side of the argument. So you can understand why there was a bit of sharp practice going on. Oh, yes, it's a point I actually make in my book. Um, the, the, British, the, the weight of the British establishment in the Brexit referendum was behind the Remain campaign. And you're totally right. A lot of the stuff that I write about and that I've been writing about, often, occasionally it's something that's illegal, but more often than not, it's perfectly within the rules. You know, if you look at... The problem actually is that the rules are so... are, are really just... are designed almost to... Um, to to not, be to not be followed. I compare it a lot to the tax system. If you look at the city of London and tax, 
if you're really rich, you pay almost no tax. You know how to bend the rules. You know how to work the system. The little guy is the guy who ends up following all the rules and the guy who ends up getting caught out if they make a mistake. But actually, if you're big enough, you can get away with anything. You can push the boundary. So in Britain, the official leave campaign, vote leave, was found to have broken the law during the referendum, but it only got fined £20,000 because that's the maximum fine you can get. So, you know, a campaign that spends £7 million can only be fined £20,000. It's very, that's, and it's, it's exactly those legal opportunities or the lack of legal opportunities um, that allow campaigners to kind of get away, to push the envelope as far as they can. It's really different if you look at, like, say, America, where um, Michael Cohn, as some of your uh, listeners will be familiar with, uh, kind of uh, um, one of uh, Donald Trump's kind of lieutenants ended up in prison for breaking electoral law. That doesn't happen in Britain and it doesn't happen in Ireland either. I think we've got used to a system because where we kind of think that everyone will pay, play within the rules and generally that probably was the case for a long time but now more and more I think what we're seeing is people pushing the rules further and further because they know they can get away with bending them and just breaking them outright. And we might come to what, you know, what, to what end those, those are being put in a moment. I suppose traditionally when people think of money in politics they think of corruption. They think of politicians uh, enriching themselves by taking money with backhanders and then giving favours to people in, in business or financial interests or whatever it might be. There is potentially a significant amount of that underlying some of the things that go on in your book. But there's there's more than that, isn't there? There's a kind of there's there's an ideological project at play here, which is being supported by the activities you describe. Yes, I think that's, I talk about a bit in my book as well, coming from, you know, rural Ireland, growing up and we, a kind of back, the, the brown envelope culture that, you know, anybody in Ireland growing up, you know, I grew up in the 80s, was aware of. And I think that's a very, in some ways, that's quite a reductive version of corruption. You give someone money and they do something for you. And in some ways, that actually is a part, a kind of form of corruption that once you, de- it can be dealt with actually, once you take out, you know, once you take out the money aspect of it, you can see it, you know, it's hard to change, but it can be changed. What we see in Britain, I think, is something much more subtle. And in that respect, it's actually much more pernicious. Political parties all rely on private money, in particular the Conservative Party, on, on private money. But not just that. What we've seen is this kind of ideological kind of entry in, into British politics. And, and the reason I write so much about the Brexit referendum is, is for that reason. You know, lots of people in Britain vote for Brexit for lots of different reasons. And we, won't, we can never say exactly what those were. But what we can say is that the Brexit referendum itself followed about 20 years of very successful campaigning by a very small group of right-wing conservatives who were very Atlanticists, so very tied to the American Republican Party and the fringes of the Republican Party. And these were people for whom they saw the European Union as a kind of bastion of regulation that they were very much against. They were very much in the kind of Thatcherite model of, of Britain. They wanted to see this kind of buccaneering global Britain, these kind of phrases we've heard a lot about at times over the last four years. And this is very much their vision. And in fact, I was really surprised when I started researching and writing this book, just how much this could be traced to what or what would be called think tanks. So these are kind of really lobbying organizations with kind of quite fancy names like the Institute of Economic Affairs and Policy Exchange. They sound like quite banal, quite neutral uh, neutral in organizations, but actually often these are really corporate lobbying bodies. These organizations are, are mainly funded by corporate donors and they don't have to declare where their donors come from, but they're very, very influential at getting ideas onto the political uh, page in Britain. And I think a really interesting example of that really has been actually this whole argument around no deal Brexit. You know, I'm sure a lot of listeners remember when, even when the Brexit referendum happened, no one was talking about leaving without a deal. You know, that really wasn't 
the kind of conversation that was happening. And it's been very interesting to see how that's shifted, what's become well, WTO terms, then it's become an Australian-style Brexit, uh, which is basically is leaving without a deal. And what I think has been very influential in doing that is a small number of these kind of right-wing think tanks that have put out things like policy papers. They've appeared on kind of broadcast media in particular, but also in the print media, to argue, look, there's nothing to worry about here. It's totally fine. This is leaving on WTO terms. That's a, that's a really good thing. And a lot of these groups and a lot of the individuals involved have their roots in a kind of a transatlantic vision of, of Britain, Britain's role in the world, which is very much tied to America, and is actually very far away from the conversation that was happening during the Brexit referendum. And I think that's one of the things I found is that's how kind of money and influence can have a huge effect and often very cheaply. So I write a lot about one organization, the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is quite a fascinating organization. It's basically the oldest think tank, libertarian think tank in the world. It was set up down an alleyway in the city of London in the 1950s by, by a man called Anthony Fisher, who'd gone to uh, Hayek and said to him, what should I do? I want to influence politics. And Hayek That's is, Frederick Hayek, Frederick Hayek famous yeah. economist, sort of the, the, the father of, of of modern libertarianism, I suppose, really. Very much so. And Frederick Hayek was teaching in LSE. And Frederick Hayek said to him, don't become a politician. You want to influence the ideas that people talk about. And that's why he set up these think tanks, which is to kind of put these ideas out there. And he then went on to found about 150 think tanks in America, all pushing very, very similar ideas. And what, what, what the IEA was able to do is to leverage very small amounts of money, which are anonymous corporate donations, into huge amounts of media and influence. So a couple of years ago, the IEA's turnover was about £2 million, and they, they estimated they'd made £66 million worth of media coverage. And that's how ideas, and that's how small amounts of money, I think, can really shape political systems and our political conversations in ways that we don't really see when we're just looking at how much money goes into a political party or how much money was spent, say, on an advertising campaign. It's it's all fascinating that one of the things that one of the many things that's fascinating is about it's sort of contrast actually between the United Kingdom and the United States, as well as the close links, as you say, between think tanks in, in London and think tanks in, in Washington, DC. One of the big differences in the UK is that, as you say, the the amount of money itself is not that big. You you can buy quite a lot of influence for quite a small amount of money. That's one of the things I think when I first started doing this work, I found most surprising. I came to it thinking, well, actually, Britain doesn't have that much of a problem with money in politics because there's just not that much money there. If you look at the United States, like the 2018 midterm elections, about $6 billion spent in the 2018 midterm election in the United States. For £50,000, uh, you can become a member every year of what's called the Leaders Group of Conservative Donors. And for that, you get a meeting every quarter with the Prime Minister and senior cabinet ministers in a room you and just a few other donors, it's all off the record, it's totally private. So that's, you know, four meetings a year for £50,000. That's nothing compared to America. But actually, the more I look at it, the more I think it means that Britain is even more susceptible to influence from small amounts of money. And actually, the system can be pushed further because in America, you end up with actually lots of money from all sides. You know, George Soros is a big donor on the Democratic side. There's lots of big donors on the Republican side. So you end up actually, it's not very nice, but you end up with a lot of money and almost like a battle of money. Whereas in Britain, very few people give money to political parties. Very few people spend money to try and influence the political process. So that means you can have far more influence when you actually do do that. 
And I spoke to a, a man called Gutto Beb, who's a former conservative minister, who actually was a member of the European Research Group, who I'm sure some listeners remember as a kind of hardline um, conservative group that really pushed for the hardest possible Brexit. And now Mr. Beb is he's, he's like against Brexit and he's, he kind of described the European Research Group as it's kind of, he said it's, it's basically turned into a cult. But what was interesting for me was he said like, in America, you have to spend millions and millions. But actually in Britain, if you spend a quarter of a million pounds on a think tank or give a small amount of money to a political party, you can have huge influence, far more than you would do with a similar donation probably anywhere else. And I wonder why is that? I can kind of see, I mean, I read stuff about the you know, the history of the, the IEA, for example, previously. And its great triumph, of course, unexpected triumph, I think, at the time was the uh, coming, coming to power of Margaret Thatcher at the end of the 1970s and the changes she brought in, which they obviously you know, heart, heartily approved of. But the think tanks themselves um, were set up, I suppose, as a kind of countervailing force to what was seen as a, a liberal establishment or a centre-left establishment in the universities and various other kind of the media, uh, various other areas of intellectual power or, or various elites. But now, I think you argue in the book, it's fair to say, they're really there mostly to get on the telly and get on the radio and make arguments uh, on that on that sort of surface, as opposed to bringing up academic papers or doing doing I suppose deeper deeper work. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of it. I spoke to people who were involved, and I, I totally agree. You know, these think tanks actually arguably came out of an important moment in that what you had was a post-war consensus in Britain, the Conservatives and Labour after World War II, and for many decades afterwards, basically both agreed that the state should have a very big role in the economy, should basically be a planned economy, and these people were pushing back against this. And they were very influential. They became, you know, the, their, their ideas, and they far quickly, far faster, I think, thought they ever thought it would happen, became influential in government. But fast forward to now, the, these groups rarely are producing particularly interesting ideas. It's very, very predictable. It's the kind of stuff about the nanny state. You know, some of them have now become very much involved with the kind of anti-mask movement in Britain. It's, it's really predictable, kind of very American-style culture wars that they're getting involved with. And some in the think tank world in Britain have really noticed this. I spoke to one person off the record in my book who said, like, you know, these think tanks have lost their way. This was a, once a senior person right wing think tank said, look, they've completely lost their way. They're just chasing social media clicks. They're just chasing controversy. But there's actually no new ideas. And at the back of that, I think there is a crisis. And you're seeing it on both sides of the Atlantic. In libertarian in libertarianism in kind of libertarian capitalist thinking they're on the back foot in america you know donald trump was was not the libertarian candidate by any stretch of the imagination and similarly in britain while there's they've kind of done very well with brexit in terms of getting brexit to happen and they still are clinging on to this idea of buccaneering global britain the reality is what people want and what people voted for looks to be very different from that. And there's an intellectual crisis, I think, at the heart of it. There's a very interesting man called Stephen Westlake, who used to work for Theresa May, and is quite well versed in these. And he call, what he calls it, he calls it um, Thatcherite LARPing, um, as live-action role-play, basically performative conservatism. Instead of actually coming up with ideas, which the IEA and their, their kind of fellow travellers in the 70s did have ideas, they had policy papers, they tried to get things to happen. What you end up with is this very kind of culture wars style thing and what you else end up with is becoming very much in hock to your donors so if you're getting money say from the drinks industry you're then producing papers that argue that you know uh, tax on alcohol are bad similarly from the cigarette lobby and it's not particularly it's not particularly profound it's not particularly provocative it's actually it's a bit tawdry actually and i think it's, it's ability for something as tawdry as that to influence politics is something that i personally find, i find quite concerning it's one of the reasons i dedicate quite a bit of my book to trying to understand how that happens 
So there is this paradox or this internal contradiction between these two forms of, of conserv- very different forms of conservatism uh, or right of centre, further than right of centre, right-wing thinking, um, between the nationalist protectionism of Donald Trump and, or the, the, uh, the old red wall, which is now a blue wall in, in, in Northern England. And on the other hand, these absolutely really committed roll-back-the-state conservatives. Is that all going to blow up in their face in the end? I think that's a really interesting question, not just for Britain, but almost globally, looking ahead to the 2020 American election. There feels like there's a clash coming between these two forces. So if you take just Britain, we're going, we're kind of heading towards Brexit endgame. They are antithetical positions. On the one hand, you have some of the people, the kind of people I write about in my book, the kind of, you know, the uber free marketeers, the think, these think tanks who are, you know, we want to get rid of all trade barriers. We reimagining Britain as a kind of force for, you know, for kind of global free trade versus the reality of the lot of the voters who wanted this to happen, the kind of red wall voters who, who gave Boris Johnson his majority. They do not want to see no tariff barriers. So when you see someone like Professor Patrick Min- Minford, who's been around for a very long time, who appears on so many of these think tanks, and one just a kind of aside is these think tanks multiply. There's one street in London called Tufton Street that probably has hundreds of these think tanks listed on it. There's, you know, some of these they can kind of pop up as just as websites now. Um, but Patrick Minford was a, a, a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher. Before the referendum, he said that, you know, basically the car industry in Britain would go, but that's okay, you know, because we'd get rid of tariffs on, 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 uh, on vehicles and on goods going in and out of Britain. So, but that's okay because it would be replaced by something much better, this kind of Singapore on Thames vision, which does not tally at all with the people who um, who voted for Brexit. And that's the problem, what, what happens with kind of a, a very broad-based electoral coalition, that the, the kind of intellectual ideas for the Brexit project and what is now Britain's project for 2020, given Boris Johnson's support for it, are really based in this kind of free market vision of Britain, but the coalition of voters that actually won the referendum isn't. And it does feel like we're going to come to some crunch point. And you can already start to see on the edges of this and say on the edges of the Conservative Party in Britain, a fraying around this, a kind of a split between especially these new Tory MPs from Red Wall seats who would see themselves as quite what what Steve Bannon uh, who I spoke when I spoke to him in the book calls economic nationalists and these kind of European research group type people who want to see um, global free trade in Britain at the middle of some sort of, you know, kind of well, empire 2.0. And at the moment, it looks more likely, I think, that the economic nationalists will win out the argument, given the sheer weight of numbers. And where, given that there was a report on it last week only in the, in the UK, do the Russians fit into all this? Well, it's interesting, and my I don't talk massively about Russia in my book, and I found the Russia report quite a fascinating document because it had, you know, it had taken nine months to come out. Boris Johnson had spent a huge amount of political capital in trying to keep it out, and when it came out, you know, it, it makes a lot of quite general points around uh, things like disinformation in Britain, the role of, potential role of the Kremlin in disinformation campaigns, both during the Scottish independence referendum and the Brexit referendum. It doesn't make any kind of solid uh, claims on any either of those because it says that the British government didn't investigate any of those things. Uh, more interestingly to me, I think, was the points about the role of Russian money in Britain and in British politics. You know, Britain has been a laundromat, really. London, the city of London has cleaned a lot of dirty money from the, Soviet, the post-Soviet states, and particularly in Russia. The Conservative Party have taken in significant amounts of money from Russian-born donors, many of whom were given passports in the 1990s, basically who bought passports. 
But even more concerning, I thought, was that buried away in the middle of this 50-page document are two paragraphs that say that when it comes to democracy in Britain, there's not any agency, there's no agency of government who's actually really in charge of democracy, of making sure that the democratic process in Britain is safe and secure. There's lots of different government bodies, things like the Electoral Commission, uh, government departments, uh, the defence aspects of defence community, which should have some sort of say in it. But actually, when it comes down to the crunch, there's nobody actually looking at the health and the state of British democracy, whether that's disinformation campaigns online or what, what I think can be even much more effective is spending money and gaining influence by influencing politicians. And we know that politicians can be influenced because really at the end of the day, when you spend money, when you give money to somebody like that, it's very hard for them not to be influenced. And especially in a situation, you know, we've seen in Britain where individual Conservative MPs and government ministers received sizable donations, not just from from Russian-born donors, but from lots of donors who've got vested interest in in certain things happening or not happening. So we've had this big scandal, which I won't run through all of it running this summer, to do with Robert Jenrick, who was a housing minister. And he gave planning permission for, we actually expedited planning permission for Richard Desmond, who's, under, who's a conservative donor, a huge property developer. And Mr. Jenrick admitted what, he, what was called, quote unquote, apparent bias in pushing through this decision. Basically what he did was he pushed through the planning process um, a kind of a, quite a controversial scheme. He saved Mr. Desmond forty-five million pounds in the process, and it's you know it's kind of at the it's it's left a lot of people asking questions about the potential for influence because Mr. Desmond sat next to Robert Jenrick at a Conservative dinner a couple of months beforehand and showed him videos on his phone of the development, and then subsequently made a small donation to Conservative Party. And what's almost worse than the influence is actually how it erodes people's trust in a democratic system. And the two countries in the world that have the lowest levels of satisfaction with democracy are the United Kingdom and the United States. They are the two countries in the world where money has the biggest role in politics. And I think it's very hard not to see a connection between the kind of loss of faith and the erosion of trust in politics and the role of money. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. I mean, it's not the the UK and the US are not the only places where where this is happening, though. I mean, obviously, some of the <clears throat> some of the um, the trends you describe are happening across across many democracies, and we wouldn't have had uh, a vote to leave the EU, or indeed a vote for Donald Trump, or a number of other manifestations of of these kinds of politics over the last few years, were it not for the fact that there was a very real disenchantment, distrust, loss of faith in traditional democratic institutions and the elites who've been running them. So it was an opportunity which was taken up. Oh, very much so, yeah. And I think that's, you know, it's, the you couldn't have had, it's not as if you can, people are manipulated, can be manipulated just by social media ads and someone spending a couple of pounds, you know, to, to lobby somebody. And I think that's where sometimes we can get over kind of, deterministic with this you can go this is you know the brexit referendum happened because there was an advert in a train no that's not that's not how politics works you have to have the kind of substrata below that in which people are as you say people are becoming increasingly disenchanted whether they're labor voters in red wall seats who then turn to the conservatives and voted for brexit as well or they're the kind of american heartlands where the Democrats were one strong that voted for Donald Trump. And I think what you're seeing is, I think this role of money is part of this wider alienation between um, 
between the electorate and politicians. The most successful politicians at the moment aren't th those who are whiter than white, who are trying to change the system, but they are the ones who are able to position themselves as against the previous system. And that's what you've seen in Britain. Boris Johnson, you know, has done that really successfully. Dominic Cummings, who's someone I write about at length in the book, you know, has really successfully constructed himself as the anti-establishment maverick who's going in there and is going to get stuff done. You know, I just broke a story a couple of weeks ago with The Guardian about how a, a company that Dominic Cummings' friends ran had been given a public contract for almost a million pounds per, to run focus groups with no tenders and having never done any government work before, which feels very much like it's that's the kind of thing that is at, still at the moment. It's if you can present yourself, if you can you be if you can be perceived as as the anti-establishment figure, you will uh, succeed in terms of uh, electority because there is lots and lots of. I think very, very genuine grievances with the political system as it currently exists. And I think there's a, I would sometimes be concerned by people who, like, you look at the kind of work that I, I, my colleagues do and say, okay, what we need to do is kind of, we need to just stop all of these things happening and then the good people from the 90s will take over again. You know, we kind of look back to the Blair and, you know, if we can just stop all these, this nasty stuff happening, Blair and Brown, the kind of the, 20, the 21st century then will come back. And actually, to be honest, what we're reaping is the, the seeds of that type of politics. You know, in Britain, Tony Blair was the kind of archetype of, of the kind of Dominic Cummings model of managing the media, of rewarding political friends and allies, you know, of, of cash for honours and cash for questions as well. These these were both features of, of Tony Blair's administration as well as Conservative administration. So, and I think that's the thing I find. I think there's, there needs to be a reckoning and a kind of kind of try and engage with, with the role of money in politics in a way that doesn't just say, you know, we just need to go back to where we were before. I very much take that point. But isn't it true, to some extent at least, and I, I, you've already said that getting on mainstream media platforms is as important, possibly more important than social media. But social media is one of the things, digital communications are one of the things that have changed our society in many ways, including our politics very profoundly. Uh, and we come back again to who's got the money and who's spending it and how are they spending it and how accountable and how visible is that? Well, what's fascinating in, say, in the British context, and not dissimilar in Ireland, we saw some of this around the age referendum, um, is that you've got a situation in Britain where we actually can tell so little about what's done in politics online. We can tell almost nothing about it. It's um, there's, because the laws were written for the analogue age. So, so for example, just as a tiny example, if you get a leaflet through your door before an election, it will have a little imprint on the back that says, who paid for it? What's the political party? None of that exists online. You don't have to do any of that online. So what we've seen is a, online has become the wild west of politics. You can push messages. You can push much harder messages online than you used to push um, in print. It means you can have a kind of a variated conversation as well. You can target adverts, but also not just necessarily target just particular people, but particular geographical areas or particular kind of mediums. So in the past, you know, people used to have to put their posters up at the end of the, you know, at the end of the road. Everyone saw them. Everyone saw the messages. So that had a kind of constraining effect on just how extreme I think our politics would get, just how kind of like visceral the kind of messaging. Uh, political campaigns would use. That's really gone out the window. And we saw that in a big way in Britain during the 2019 uh, general election, where I think we saw a level of kind of hard-nosed messaging and of, of a kind of of pushing the envelope that we hadn't seen before. So, for example, there was a live debate uh, with Jeremy Corbyn. And 
the Labour leader in the run-up to the vote. And during the debate, the Conservative Party changed the name of its Twitter account to Fact Check UK and pretended it was fact-checking. And it genuinely pretended it was fact-checking um, what, what uh, Jeremy Corbyn was saying, rather than being a party political organisation. So there was a lot, and there was many other examples like that were taking place. So what you've seen is that um, online politics allows... We saw it in 2016 as well with Donald Trump, where a lot of the most extreme conversations were happening online. And that then filters in, I think, it can kind of then almost subcutaneously filters into the wider conversation that's happening. You know, people are picking up on messages that are happening online that they mightn't be seeing, say, in the page of the Irish Times or in newspapers or on the television. And that can shift and change what's happening politically in ways that I don't think, I think we can really underestimate. It's not necessarily about a voter seeing an, an, um, seeing an advert and going, I'm now going to vote for that because I've seen an advert. It's about changing the conversation. And I, I noticed that both when I was covering the 2016 Brexit referendum and I Covered the 2016 um, presidential election in America as well. People were having conversations to me about stuff they hadn't saw on Facebook in ways that I hadn't seen before. And adverts we now know subsequently were taking place, were happening on Facebook that really weren't part of the national conversation. So, for example, in Britain, the Vote Leave campaign spent a lot of money on adverts around Turkey. And the, the fear of Turkey joining the European Union was their big thing. But they really didn't talk about it much in the public. And that wasn't a conversation that they were having that much publicly, beyond the odd. Um, kind of hint or word here or there. So it allows for these different conversations to take place. I think it means that it's much harder for us to have a sense of a kind of public realm and a, and a unified public discourse around politics, and it increases the kind of splintering. Um, that will take. That will happen. I think because we because you can't you can't you know we can't be King Canute trying to hold back the tide. But what you can do is rather than let everything happen and then retrospectively try to deal with it, which is what most countries seem to be doing is to put up actual enforcement around it and even to force social media cam uh, companies like Facebook to you know to not um, for, take money and um, run adverts that that spread lies and misinformation and, and rather than I, I think we've been so reactive governments I think have been very reactive rather than proactive and saying okay this is how we've done our politics you know these are the laws we put into into politics um, before the internet we thought long and hard about them but it certainly did in in some jurisdictions but now, now we need to think about them for the digital age rather than going, okay, well, on internet's happening, let's forget about that completely. And that's what's been the problem. That's one of the reasons I think that online politics has had such an impact. I mean, I, I do wonder, and I look at, you know, you look at um, hearings in our own Oireachtas in, in Westminster, the Houses of Congress in the States, and you look at these uh, uh political representatives just trying to get their heads around what the challenge is of the kind of bringing in the kind of uh, regulation of discourse which, which which you mentioned there. And they're always fighting a war, not just from last year, but from about five years ago. And that's if they grasp the, the basic issues at all. I wonder how capable our current political system is of taking on that challenge. I think it's a very, very fair question. And and it's interesting. So I, I write in a book about um, attending one of the hearings of the department, the government department in Britain, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport had a select committee, an inquiry into fake news. And I went along one day into this kind of uh, fusty building in Portcullis House, just overlooking the Thames. And 
Mark Zuckerberg had been invited to attend, the CEO of Facebook. Uh, he didn't attend. Instead, he sent a guy called Richard Hallam. Richard Hallam was a former Lib Dem MP and was also is a member of the House of Lords. So you had a, in Britain, you had a member of the House of Lords appearing at a select committee to kind of try and excuse away the fact that his boss wouldn't turn up and to try and bat away questions by parliamentarians who, frankly, often didn't understand how this technology worked. And I think there's a huge problem with this. We tend also to fixate on what happened last time. So Facebook is a great example of that. There's a question, there's a deeper question, I think, kind of at play there, where how do we, you know, we live in incredibly complex worlds and it's becoming far more complex than it was 20 years ago and on every kind of conceivable level. And there's a huge mismatch between elected representatives who are there fundamentally, supposedly, to represent our interests as the electorate. And they're there to try and kind of to, to kind of represent us best as best they can. And they're really not going to be able, capable of dealing with this level of complexity, with these kind of really, really difficult um, kind of uh, massive questions of tech governance, of the role of the state, but also the nuts and bolts of you know, how does an algorithm work? How do you change an algorithm to promote, not to promote misinformation? How do you change it to promote information that kind of contributes to a proper public discourse? And until we kind of take a different tack with it, I think there's going to, there needs to be a kind of a far bigger and far more kind of supranational uh, approach to it. The European Union has showed some inclination towards doing something around this because the tech companies at the end of the day, I still think, are unlikely to bend to small countries' demands or even medium-sized countries, really. You know, it was telling that Mark Zuckerberg appeared in Brussels at an inquiry into a very similar theme to which to one in which um, London, he didn't feel like he needed to do so. So I think that needs to be part of it. You know, it's up to politicians as well, though, to get themselves educated into this. You know, I came into this subject not knowing all that much about it and, and was able, I think, over a period of time from talking to very smarter people than I am to glean some of the core tenets of it. And I think almost politicians need to figure out, well, what is the system we would like to have and how do we, you know, how do we find ways of getting technology to serve that rather than the other way around. But it, there's no doubt about it. These are really, really naughty and tricky questions. One of the reasons I think that politicians have really struggled to hold social media companies to account. Um, I, I think, you know, to, to be honest, I have no idea <laughs> what would need to be done myself. I mean, the, the very basis upon what these, which these platforms are set up seems inimical to actually uh, any process by which you could actually prevent what, whatever 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 state deems to be inappropriate material unless you go down the china route which i don't think any of us is uh is, really wants to see yeah and i think there's some interesting lessons from history in this you know if you go back to the the kind of the the, the late 19th century in the states when you had the kind of the, the the um the railroad monopolies you know this kind of and what were really kind of rubber barren capitalism and what had happened was the united states had flourished and they, but the people who were there first had made a huge amount of money they, they had monopolies and really what we've seen in the tech industry is something similar has happened. We're 20 years into past the tech revolution. The people who were there early are really big now. Amazon is huge. Facebook is huge. You know, you, these companies will make an argument that they're really good at what they do. And yeah, sure, that's true. But you can't make, you can't deny the fact that monopoly power is huge online now. And I think there's, there is the time to have an argument that Elizabeth Warren, who was one of the defeated presidential candidates in Democratic contest uh, for 2020, had a lot of really interesting uh, kind of ideas around this. So much to do was to, was, was to kind of 
to deem some of these companies monopolies and talk about their breakup. And I think you do have, I think the time has come to have quite radical conversations about these uh, about these major firms because they can have massive impacts on all of our lives and what they do and how they decide to run themselves can have huge impacts. Just one small example is Facebook's move towards having closed groups, having encouraging people into closed groups, which I think Facebook probably did thinking it was a good thing to do, which is like, let's get people into communities where they can talk to each other. You know, let, let's make it a more kind of a kind of community feel. And that's had lots of really great things. You can have your football club on a closed Facebook group. You can chat to each other. But it's also become a haven for conspiracy theories. You can have your 5G. You know, 5G is all a conspiracy theory on group there. You can have your, you know, all of your different QAnon, whatever whatever flavor of conspiracy is there on your closed group. And you're a lot of people who are able to just talk to one another and reinforce each other. And so that's a really good example of a small change that Facebook made, which sounded like quite a, you know, a minor point. Probably, especially in America, having huge, and I, I would argue in, in Europe as well, having huge impacts on in terms of our daily politics. I want to finally come back to money because money is really what the, what the book is about the the intersection between money and politics in the United Kingdom, and that it seems to me is a less thorny problem because it should be possible to force the think, the think tanks to reveal the source of their funding, to be have greater clarity and sunshine on where politicians have their business relationships and where they get you know, you know money around the back of a corner somehow i mean you talk about think tanks paying for people's flights around the world and stuff like that and nobody knows where the, where the money comes from all that stuff seems to me to be eminently fixable yes and one of the reasons one of the things that's most depressing about spending so long writing about this this stuff and spending so long researching and writing articles about it is that i would completely agree a lot of this stuff is fixable you know there's there's lots of things you could do with the drop of a hat. You know, in for example, say in Britain, you could make political donations, cap them at ten thousand pounds. No one, which is in France, is seven thousand five hundred euros. You know, other states have done this. You could, um, does you could force um, charities to declare their donations, which would mean think tanks have to declare their donors. You could. There's all manner of things you could do. You could reform lobbying. The lobbying system in Britain is a complete disaster. It's so easy to work around it. You could put in proper rules. There's lots of international best practice in this. It could be done pretty much tomorrow. But it requires political will to do it. And it's a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas. Um, the Conservative Party in Britain um, has, has shown no inclination towards this. In reacting to the Russia report, Boris Johnson said it was all a kind of Islington, North London Remainer plot. He's shown no desire to engage with political electoral reform. And you could see why he wouldn't want to, because it's done very well for him. If you, you know, if you know how to work the system, the broken system, then you can profit from it. What's probably, I think, even more depressing is that it's not just the party of government in Britain that's taken this approach. Really, all the political parties, I think, on some level think, well, I kind of know how this works. You know, I know in my local area how to kind of game the system so I can have, you know, I can kind of take advantage when it comes to election time. I can get kind of more of my leaflets out than the opponent. So I don't really want to see any change. And there's almost like a kind of collective will not to engage with this subject because everyone seems to think that they're winning from the broken system. They're winning from it because they know how to they know how to abuse it and how to use it, which is actually really a textbook definition of a corrupt system, you know, really when it comes down to it. But until such time that kind of the, the turkeys aside to vote for Christmas, we won't see any change. I think it's one of the most dispiriting things about it. It wouldn't be that difficult to take the money out of British politics, but it will require politicians to want to do it. A last question, and it may be an unfair one, so apologies if it is. 
how many of these problems exist, exist in Ireland as well? It's interesting. I've had a little bit of a, a, a kind of look around uh, Irish donations as well. A lot, I think, to be honest. Uh, the SIPO registration, uh, SIPO data is really, really hard to work with. I, I look at it and go, this makes no sense. You know, there's political parties declaring nothing, which makes you go, what's going on there? There's, there's a lot of the rules around political donations in, in Ireland. If anything, actually look more opaque than they are in Britain. They were a response similarly to Britain to the sense of we, something must be done around this. We should have some clarity. But actually, what you've ended up doing is, I think there's almost less clarity if, you know, for people who want to go out and see where politicians are getting money from around, it's really, really difficult. From my, I'm not an expert in it, but I can see very similar uh, themes in Irish politics that you see in Britain. So, you know, there's definitely a need. I know there's been conversations in, in Ireland about having a proper electoral commission. I was really stuck when I did some research around the the uh, some of the referendums. Just how little information comes out of the electoral uh, from SIPO and how it's the job is just so opaque and confusing. And there's lots of different agencies. A similar situation in Britain. Lots of different agencies supposedly with some oversight. And what happens then is lots and so lots and lots falls through the cracks. So Ireland is in no way immune from some of the things I'm writing about. The book is called a Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. It's published by Head of Zeus this week. Peter Gagan, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thanks very much, you. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And don't forget to sign up for a subscription to the Irish Times at irishtimes.com slash subscribe. Unless, of course, you've done so already, in which case we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. If you have anything you'd like us to know or any suggestions for what we might do better, please do mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Your views are always extremely welcome and they are taken on board. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.